And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to my favorite book in the Bible, the book of Hebrews. Specifically, Hebrews chapter 12. Having a hard time locating Hebrews, it's just right before James. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 12 today. Hebrews chapter 12 will be in verses 1 through 17. And it reads thusly. Listen carefully, for this is God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the, the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's now go in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit's blessing on our text today. Oh God, we have a really powerful text in front of us 
There's a lot to unpack here, and I pray that you would help us to receive it well. Give me the words that I may preach this text well, that we may be edified and changed by it so that we would love and trust you more. In Jesus' name that we ask these things, amen. Well, normally as we go through our Sunday service, we've been going through the book of Luke. But I wanted to take this brief break and use the opportunity of Father's Day to preach this sermon. Also, the next verse in Luke was on divorce, which felt a little of a downer on a, on a Father's Day. So we were instead going to talk about the Lord's discipline, a nice encouraging topic instead. What we've been looking at in the Gospel of Luke and where we have been lately is we've just finished the parable of the prodigal son, as it's been called, or as we we discovered and looked at it that it should have been titled the generous father because that's what it was about wasn't it a father who had two sons who were very distant from him in different ways but has welcomed them into his fellowship a very gracious and forgiving father even though they have sinned in all sorts of ways against him and that's meant to be a picture of what god's fatherhood is like to us That he's a very gracious father that we can come and approach and rely on a forgiveness in his grace. Now, I want you to hang on to that picture because it would look like, at first at least, that when we look into this passage that we're seeing the other side of graciousness. Here we see God who is disciplining his children, chastising them. In fact, you could, the, the word you could, you could also translate it scourge, a serious punishment. And we could look at that, or, or, or a serious discipline, rather. Um, we can look at that and say, okay, this is the opposite of what we saw earlier. Yes, we have the grace, but we've also got the hard parts of God. I don't want us to see it that way. And I don't think that's how this text wants us to see the Lord's discipline What I hope we can see out of this passage is that God is actually doing something that that he can do in no other way. That when he is disciplining us, when hard things come into our lives, that this is evidence of God's grace. Not his malice, not his anger, but his grace towards us to guide those of us who are his sons into the right paths. That's what I hope that we can see today. Now, you may notice, if you look on your outline, you may notice a severe breakage in tradition of three points instead of two. But I've repented, and as I was reviewing this sermon, I realized I bit off way more than I can chew in this one section. So we're actually going to look at just two points today, and in order to make them cohere, I've changed them. So all sorts of indecently and out of order here on this service today. So if you're a visitor, I apologize. I'm normally more organized than this. But our first point that we're going to be looking at today, you can write this down. Our first point is that God calls us to race towards him. God calls us to race towards him. That's going to be what we're going to be looking at in these first several verses of our passage today. And then the second point that I want us to walk away from and remember today is that God's discipline trains us to run the race better. Again, God's discipline trains us to run the race better. 
So we're going to be looking at these two points as we go through this passage. We're going to spend most of our time going through verses 1 through 11. I will only very briefly be able to touch 12 through 17. Uh, But I, I, I hope that this will be an encouraging passage to you today. So let's take a look again on our first point that God calls us to race toward him. And let's take a look at the first two verses of our chapter, chapter 12. In this passage, these first two verses, is really important to get a hold of in order for the rest of the passage to make sense. Whenever we talk about the commands of Scripture, when we have a thou shalt do this, it's always based on this has been done for you. Usually there is a therefore or a whereas or something like that between those two things. Uh, We have the, the reason why we do this thing and what we should be doing. The indicative and the imperative, if you're for those English majors out there. So what we see here today is he is bringing up something that he's mentioned in chapter 11. So I'm going to go back very briefly. We're just going to take a look at chapter 11 just for a moment. And we're going to look at, or we'll start in verse 36 of chapter 11. This has been known as the hall of faith. The writer of Hebrews goes through all of these Old Testament saints that have gone on before us and have lived faithful lives. But it's been not an easy journey. These have not experienced the Joel Osteen victorious life that is so often promised in prosperity gospel. That's why we can see it's not true. See if these people have been living their best lives. Start in verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's who these witnesses are referring to. Those from the past who have gone on and have lived the commands that we see here in verse 12, that hold on to a faith in God and a trust in what he's doing. Now, when it says that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race well, we have in mind the idea of spectators in an arena, don't we? You can imagine a track that we're on and running around and you've got all these other people filling the heavenly stands cheering us on. That's not exactly the picture that he's drawing here when it says witnesses. It's not so much the Old Testament saints looking down and looking at us, but it's more about us looking at them. And what they have witnessed to us. That is what faith in God will do. And what it will get them through. And it's meant to be an encouragement to us as we glance at those that have gone on before us. But we're supposed to keep our eyes in a very particular place. And that is looking to Jesus. This is the one that we keep our eyes on. Yes, we glance at the saints to see what has gone on before and how that's worked in others' lives, but our main focus is Christ. The word that they use there is the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who started it and the one who brings it to full maturity. 
the beginning and the end, so to speak. Um, I read one of the commentators when we look at how things are made today. Often you have someone who comes up with an idea and then someone who actually perfects it and makes it usable in the wider market. We see this is what Thomas Edison did with the light bulb. He didn't come up with the idea of the light bulb wholesale, but he has found the way to make it functional and to bring it into what we have and appreciate today. He's perfected it. But that's different with Jesus. Jesus has brought faith into your heart, and he's the one that's perfecting it as well. He's not taken faith, given it to you, and say, all right, see what you can do with that. He's given it to you and saying, I'm going to walk you through this whole process with you all the way, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he calls us now to endure. How does he do that? In verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with, the ra- with endurance the race that is set before us. I like how the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but how he brings this out is to say that we are running a race and that's going to mean we're going to need to leave some things behind. As the Olympics approach at the end of next month, you will see athletes who will do whatever it takes to shave off as much time as they can, even if it's hundreds of a second off their time. We will see runners who will not only try to get the lightest shoes possible, but the lightest of clothing to make sure that nothing holds them back in their race. Or swimmers who will shave themselves to make sure that not even that little bit of drag from their five o'clock shadow keeps them from getting gold. And if they're going to lay aside everything in their lives to make this one thing happen, how much more should we? And how much more should we because there is someone who has already done that for us, who lived this out, I'm not talking about the saints in Hebrews 11. I'm talking about our Christ here in Hebrews 12. Look what it says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's the example. Jesus is not calling us to run a race that he has not run himself. That he laid aside everything in order to become one of us and dies on a cross. One of the most shameful ways to be executed. Only for the lowest of criminals was that method of execution used. But he does all of this, why? For the joy that was set before him. The joy of his fathers. The joy of bringing his children into fellowship with him. He's endured all of that. So now what does he ask us to do? We are called to endure this race. So how? How do we do that? Well, look here, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here we are considering, we are thinking carefully, meditating on what Christ has done. And all the hostility that he endured from other people in his journey to the cross. And so that we do this so that we are not weary or faint-hearted. And look here in verse 4. There's a little bit of 
uh, a shot in the arm to be given to us. When it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. When he is talking about resisting sin here, I think this is in parallel to the same idea of verse 3, that we are resisting um, um, sin in both our personal lives and sin in uh, the wider world. And those forces of persecution that would want to come in and will, in a futile attempt, but they'll try nonetheless, to hold back the kingdom of God. And it's enduring against that. It gets hard, doesn't it? You turn on the news and it just seems like everything is just working against us, isn't it? It's even sadder when you open up the denominational newspapers and you see that there's still sin even within the denomination, even within the church that you're working with. And it can feel exhausting. Why are we going through this again? Then here he says, verse 4, to take heart. You've not resisted to get the point of shedding your own blood. And I was like, well, well thanks. <laughs> Great. I'm not, so we, we, no one's bleeding yet. But here in the, when he's saying this, we're remembering there is someone who did shed blood for us. There is one who did resist to the point of shedding his own blood. That is Christ. But I think that there's more that we have here. Because if we were just to stop there, we might think that what Hebrews is telling us is saying, all right, Christian, buck up. Others have done better than you in the past. Christ has done better than you in the past. So you get to it in the future. No one's died yet. Stop being dramatic. Is that all that the Bible has to tell us is buck up? No. He gives us much more than that. It's not just a endure the world because this is the best that we can do. Just trudge through life because there's a better thing at the end. What he's saying here. Listen carefully. Grab this if you've wandered away. I do it too, so come on back. What he's doing here is that these trials and troubles are training you for something. There is a purpose to why you're going through all of what you're going through. And it is discipline, training, correction that's happening in our lives. Why? Because God hates us? No. Because God's upset with us and is trying to get us back in line however he can? No. It's because we're sons. Now, that doesn't have an impact on us as much today because in our culture, our children inherit property equally. At that time, when, when, they, when a father had an inheritance to pass on, it was passed on to the first son. And he would receive a double portion. And other sons after that would, get, would have a breakout of however many sons that they had. So for you to be a son of God meant that you stood to have an inheritance from God. That meant something. And in the ancient world, when fathers had sons, they would discipline those sons because they knew that son was picking up where they left off when they died. He was getting the property. He was getting the business. He was getting the land. So he had to be ready for that. There was responsibility that was coming. So he cared about this son. But in the ancient world, much like today, there were illegitimate sons as well. And an illegitimate son wasn't getting anything. Wasn't part of the family. So dad didn't care what happened to him. He wasn't getting property. He wasn't getting money. He wasn't getting anything in the business. So who cares what that boy does? 
Let him do whatever. What this passage is saying here, when he says, my son, that grabs a hold of us. It should anyway. That God sees us as someone that he wants to take care of and is going to correct and discipline. Now, you'll notice I slipped up earlier when I said punishment. But that's not when, when Christ, when God is disciplining us, this is not for wrongdoing. Christ has taken all of the punishment. All of the wrath of God is cleared away. Christ has taken all of that. That's why he endured the cross. But what we have now today and the punishment, oh, the, the, see, there I go again. The, the discipline, the hardships that we have in our life is not of God saying, I'm going to zap you. I'm going to try to get you. No. This is him. I want to guide you. I want to correct you and move you back so that you can run this race well. I had a, I had a cello teacher. She was from Czechoslovakia. Her name was Vera. I took cello lessons with her in the summer, and she was one of the most intense teachers I ever had. Most cello teachers, for those of you that haven't taken cello lessons, the other one will sit in the other chair with their cello and is watching you and will make corrections verbally to you, not Vera. She never had a cello in her hand, but she was always hovering in front of me like a, pit, like a catcher at a baseball game. And any second that my knee would move out to the side, she'd grab it and move it back. And my hand started to move in an awkward position, she would fix it. And for 45 minutes, this is what would happen. (laughs) Now, Vera was not angry at me, but she was disciplining me. She was training me and not letting anything slide. And that was a kind teacher. And that's what we have here with God. What it says here in verse five. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then he goes on from there and looks and draws an analogy from fatherhood that we all know, that human fatherhood. And he's treating you as sons. Look in verse 7. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate. Children are not sons. Here he's going through the same thing. Your fathers disciplined you because they loved you. And now I, God the Father, am disciplining you because I love you as well. But there's something else here. We respect our earthly fathers for what they've done. But if we're honest, we get to verse 10, we can think about times in which our fathers did not do this well. Even though I've only been a father for a year, I've not done this well either. Verse 10, for they, that is earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. They weren't always right. Sometimes they were too harsh. Sometimes they were too lax. Sometimes they gave us good advice and other times they did not. Sometimes they disciplined us because they were embarrassed by our behavior in public or because they needed to carry on the name and be respectable in society. But God's discipline is different. God's discipline has no other ulterior motives. 
His discipline is perfect, and it's for our good. You see, our Heavenly Father is unlike our earthly father because our Heavenly Father is perfectly holy. Everything He does is right. He's also all-knowing, so God our Father has all the facts. He knows exactly what you did and is also infinitely wise and knows exactly what it will take to bring you back and is infinite and eternal in his love and is motivated by that to bring you back to himself. This is what he's doing. And he's doing this as we see for this purpose, verse 11. And here we're moving into our second point. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Don't you love the honesty of the Bible? God is disciplining us. And it hurts sometimes. It's hard. It's painful rather than pleasant in the short term. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those hardships that come into your life are doing something for you that your pleasures just can't. How many of us have ever had a moment of moral clarity and transformed life lounging in a hammock on the beach? It's not happened to me. But we know those times which we have felt the closest to the Lord. Those times in which our prayers were rich. Those times in which we saw the most out of God's word, was it not during the hard times? And it's those moments that we look back to and saying, I didn't understand it then, but boy, I can see what it's done for my life now. That's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. C.S. Lewis had said that God whispers in our pleasures and shouts through our pain. And that's what we see. So because of that, we can endure. What's happening to us is not strange. What's happening to us is not unloving. What's happening to us is not purposeless. It's doing something in our lives. It's helping us throw aside every weight and sin that would drag us down. In our race in the Christian life, there are sins that can easily tangle us up. But it's that discipline that brings us out of that. Or we can even hold on to things that aren't sinful, but slow us. Even good things can do this. Wanting to be wise with our finances can then turn into this burden of constantly looking at these things. It can become a weight to us. Or when we think about the ways that we use our time, social media and the internet, wonderful means of reaching out to folks, but can very easily become means to pull us away from our Bible and our prayers. Always love this quote and use it at any chance I, I get. John Piper had said that one of the greatest benefits of social media in the last days was to show that our prayerlessness was not due to a lack of time. God has access to your screen time statistics. 
He knows how much time you've spent on Facebook and knows how much time that's cost you in his book. So how does he do this? What does this correction look like? Well, Kent Hughes, in looking at this passage, found three ways in which God corrects us. These are really, really helpful, and I would commend these to you. He says that we have three kinds of discipline, corrective, preventative, and educational. That's corrective, preventative, and educational. And he's pulled out different Bible figures to illustrate these things. We have, for example, David, man after God's own heart, the one who slew a giant and ruled Israel, but then was unfaithful to his wife. And the Lord disciplined him. The child from that union died. His family was plunged into chaos after that. These things were God's discipline on David. And it brought it back to him. Look at Psalm 51. A beautiful, I, the picture of repentance was written out of this correction and discipline. So we have corrective of David. We can see this in even our own lives as well. We can think back on those times in which we have sinned and the results that came from that. That was teaching to us, like, this doesn't help you when those conflicts come. It's corrective discipline. The next one was preventative discipline. Sometimes the Lord will bring in hard trials into your lives to keep you from, into, from entering into these sins. And for that example, he draw from Paul. We hear Paul talks to, talks to Jesus and asks, begs three times that this thorn in the flesh would be taken away from him. We don't know exactly what his thorn in the flesh was, although some think that it might have been some sort of severe vision problem that he wasn't able to see very well. And he asked that this would be taken away from him. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you, and this is going to keep you dependent on me. It's going to prevent Paul, who had a lot of reason to be puffed up and kept him humble. When he realized, yes, I have spoken with Jesus. I have seen visions. I have brought the gospel to the Gentiles, but I can't see past my own nose. It's a wonderful way of keeping people humble. We can experience this too. Some of us don't know why we have these problems. But I think if we're honest and we're thoughtful, we look back over those things we've had, pains that we've experienced, health problems that we've experienced, relational trials, we look back and we say, that's keeping me from being too exalted in my own self. It keeps me dependent on Jesus. This is a preventative discipline. Finally, the last one that Kent Hughes brings out is an educational discipline an educational discipline. And for that, he brings out the book of Job. Now, for Job, as we all know the story, was a righteous man. This isn't Job writing his own book. This is someone who is writing about Job. This is the Holy Spirit's view of Job. It's objective. And raised his family well, yet everything falls apart for him. His family dies, his business goes under, and he loses all personal health. The only thing that, that he hasn't experienced is death. And honestly, that'd be a relief at that point. 
It's not a correction from something that he's done. It's not really a preventative in that case. He's already living righteously. But in the end, you have to go through 37 chapters before you get to that end. He sees a vision of God. And all of a sudden, all the words of saying is like, I will make my case before God becomes I lay my hand over my mouth. Because I see the majesty, the sovereignty of God. And that was worth the pain. And that education that Job got has now been passed on to us. So now we can see that God is behind our sufferings as well. And again, when we look at these sorts of disciplines, you could almost see in some ways that there could probably be more that we could bring out or the fact that there's probably some mixture of all three in there when we go through something. There is a correction for when we do something wrong, prevents us from doing these sorts of wrong things again, and educates us as to what the way forward is. This is all part of the fatherhood of God. So what should we do when hardships come? One thing that we don't want to do in this is to look at other people's trials and say, this is what God is doing to you. You must have done something back there. You clearly are going through some correctional discipline here. That's not our job. Our job when trials come into our lives is to be thoughtful. When something happens to us, we should not just sit down and be as like, well, I will just throw my pity party. No, it's saying, let's not waste those trials, as John Piper puts it. But say, what is God doing here? What can I learn for what is happening to me? It might be that you're going through something as well as the consequences of your own sin. That might be something. Could be that there's no sin involved in that area at all. And there's just something really hard that you're going through that you can't see any reason for it. But be assured, it's doing something to you. It's training you so that you can run this race well. And that's why here in the end, in the verses 12 through 17, and again, we don't have time to go through these things in detail. But now that we know This first part, we have those who have gone on before us. We have a savior who is greater than all of those witnesses, who has bought with his own blood the right for us to even be in this race, that he is training us to run this race well because he loves us as sons. Now with all of that, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet and strive and go. Too many times we get this in the wrong order. Strive, work, endure, and then maybe God will love you. No, God loves you. You're his son. There is an inheritance waiting for you. So, Run with endurance. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Be at peace with people. See to it that people don't miss the grace of God. See to it that you be are, are not sexually immoral. 
and see that you prize Jesus for who he is. Not to gain him, but to enjoy him. That's what he calls us to do. So to sum everything up, in summary, what is our takeaway for today? Our takeaway is, if you are a believer in Jesus, that's critical, by the way. If you're not a believer in Jesus, then these things, this discipline is to drive you to become a believer. So if you are a believer in Jesus, you have a perfect father who is committed to raising you, his child, rightly. That's the point out of this. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have a perfect father who is committed to raising you, his child, his son, to use scripture's language, rightly. He does so by disciplining us so that we will produce the fruit of righteousness. He does this by either correcting our bad behavior, preventing our bad behavior, or educating us about himself. All of these things will train us in righteousness so that we will follow after our Savior, the founder, the pioneer, and perfecter, the finisher of our faith that he will lead us down the race that he himself has won for us. That's our passage. That's our God. He's your father if you believe in Christ. And for that, we can have a very happy Father's Day. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for how you have been working And will work in our lives. Oh, there are times in which it is so hard. Oh, there are times in which it is so painful. But oh, help us see its worth. Help us have that fruit of righteousness. So that we can enjoy you. Separate us from those things that would hold us back. Whether they're sins or not so that we can run this race better. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.